in the series, the title of which you see on the screen. You mean the Bible teaches that. And that's the title on the front cover of the notes that you should have. And if you don't have any notes, then John has some here. Anybody need notes over here? And Jeremy has some over here. Does everybody have a set of notes? And you guys are all over it. Thank you. Thank you, uh, ushers. And you're such an obedient class. All here, the screen goes up and says, class is beginning, and you guys are ready to go. So that's, that's terrific. Well, we have much to, to cover uh, the, today on the issue of abortion. The first two weeks of this series were devoted to the issue of homosexuality. And if you weren't able to be here for either or both of those, we have the recordings for all of our sermons and lessons on our website, cbctrenton.com. So you can go and listen to those. And the notes are next to the audio as well. So you can click on that, print it out, or you can just look at it on the screen as we, uh, as you listen to the audio. But today we're going to be looking at the issue of abortion. And if you'll open your notes to page, page one, what does the Bible teach about abortion? On January 22nd of 73, the Supreme Court handed down one of the most controversial decisions in our nation's history, Roe v. Wade, wherein Jane Roe, and thus the name, uh, her identity was later revealed as Norma McCorvey, and she later became a pro-life activist, even though she was the person who had brought suit and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and she demanded, claimed a right to an abortion, and in that decision handed down on that day, the Supreme Court agreed and abortion was legalized. We'll see down at the bottom of page one a little bit about that decision and the number of justices that voted in favor of that and the composition of the court and uh, the importance of that in just a bit. But since that day, next paragraph, abortion has been one of the most divisive issues of our time. Sides line up quickly and typically characterize the other side in pejorative terms. And so sometimes with uh, names and uh, at the end of our time together, I'm going to talk about a bit about how Christians and the church should respond to this issue. Uh, and you, uh, you would probably guess that we don't want to be labeling and calling names, but rather we want to deal with facts and we want to deal with uh, truth. And we also want to do all of that with compassion as, as well. But we'll see that at the end of our, our time. Now, uh, one of the things that happens in this debate on abortion is uh, those who are in favor of uh, the pro-choice stance, as it's called, in favor of there being a right to access to an abortion, uh, they will make uh, claims and ask accusative questions toward those who are on the other side. And one of those common questions that is asked is this. Uh, who are you to cram your morality down my throat? And perhaps you've heard that, uh, but it's fairly common. Uh, who are you to tell me uh, what's right for me? And you're forcing your version of morality on me. So I want us to just think about that for a little bit. Think about that question. Who are you to cram your morality down my throat? The first thing that occurs to me is, who do you have to be? To do that, who do you have to be in order to be in favor of a law that says there are certain things that people cannot do? And in our country, in a democracy, who do you have to be? Well, you have to be uh, one of 
51% majority is who, you, is who you have to be. Now, that assumes that the thing you're in favor of with that 51% majority is not unconstitutional, which is a whole Supreme Court question, and I'll discuss that in a bit. But in terms of just laws and who are you to cram your morality down my throat, here's the truth, that every law is the cramming of someone's version of morality down the throat of somebody else. Have you ever considered that? I mean, think about taxes. We may not like taxes. I don't know that anybody here likes taxes. I certainly don't like taxes. But it's a law that I have to pay income tax. You have to pay income tax. And and the people who pass those laws pass those laws because they believe that the, sorry for the term, but the confiscation of those funds will accomplish good and ethical and moral ends. And so even taxes are done for the purpose of for what in the, at least in the, from the perspective of those who levy those taxes are good and moral and right things. So when you pay taxes, somebody's cramming their morality down your throat. Or even regulations. You know, regulations on, uh, on water and the pollution of water and the air and the preparation of food and the handling of drugs by pharmaceutical companies. Those are all regulations, but those are regulations because the people who pass those regulations deem it, I think rightly, a bad thing that someone would be poisoned by food or by their water or by the air. But it's the cramming of somebody's version of morality down the throat of the pharmaceutical people who may want to make, who may, in their version of morality, place profit over that, but you're cramming your morality down their throat. I think properly so. Or just codes for safety. You know, if you do some work on your house, we uh, put, when we did the renovations to this building, when we moved into it six years ago, and then five years ago, we put this addition on, just all, I learned all kinds of things about codes. And there's a zillion of them. And some of them may be over the top, but underlying most of them is safety. So there are electrical codes, and there are fire codes, there are all kinds of codes, and that's again somebody saying you have to do this. And the reason you have to do this is because if you don't, somebody might get hurt. And I think it's immoral to hurt people. And I think it's immoral for you to be negligent, and as a result, somebody end up harmed. And so even the codes are somebody's morality being crammed down somebody else's throat. As you think about it, and there may be exceptions to this, but probably few, laws, regulations, codes, they all fit into that category of someone's version of what's good, what's right, what's reasonable, being imposed on someone else. And some of those laws, someone's version of morality actually impose physical requirements on people. And when you drove here today, presumably you drove on the right side of the road. That's a physical requirement on you. You don't get to go on the left side of the road. And if you do go on the left side of the road, now why? Why can't you, why can't we just trust everybody to do the right thing? Because we know we're all idiots. And so we gotta force people to do the right thing. Or at least, you know, everybody else are idiots except us. 
And so there are enough of them out there that we've got to force the issue on people, and that even imposes a physical requirement. You can't be, you have to be here and not there. Another physical requirement is you can't get behind the wheel of a car if you've consumed a certain level of alcohol. That's telling you what you can do with your body. That's imposing a physical requirement upon you. And yet, often it is said in this abortion debate, who are you to tell me, not just who are you to cram your morality down my throat, but who are you to tell me what I can do with my what? With my own body. But the truth is we tell people what they can do with their bodies all the time for a higher cause. You can disagree with whether or not that higher cause is actually higher or whether or not it's good and reasonable, but nonetheless, it happens all the time. So think about it this way. Let's apply this to, I said I assume you all drove on the right side of the road. I'll assume this as well, though not with quite the same degree of confidence, that none of you came here and blew a stop sign. I won't say that with 100% confidence. I've actually seen some of you blow stop signs. Uh, and I cherish that because I'm holding it for a time that I need it against you. We've got four of them coming in on Benson. And I'm here by 9 on Sunday. But I know that at about 9.28, not everybody's here. And I've often wondered what goes on on Benson at 9.28 and a half. And how many times people are blowing through stop signs. Now, let's say you do that. And let's say when you do that, you hear a siren, you hear some lights behind you. Cop comes up to your window and you say, why are you pulling me over? Well, I'm pulling you over because you blew that stop sign. And you say something like, who are you to cram your morality down my throat? <laughs> right? We're laughing because it's, it's really absurd. And so you say something like that. You probably won't get very far with that. You say, all right, fine. You, know, you, you told me that a bunch of people got together and decided that it's a bad thing for people to just go without having a pause every now and then as they traverse the roads to look the other way and all of that. And so, therefore, all right, there's this law. But what do you want me to do next time then? What am I supposed to do? And then the police officer tells you, next time you see one of those octagonal red signs that says stop on it, I want you to take your foot off the accelerator, I want you to place it on the brake, and I want you to press down. And what if your response is, who are you to tell me what I can do with my own body? That's imposing a physical response on you, something you got to do, or otherwise you're, you're breaking, the, breaking the law. And so that is the kind of the way that we need to think about the arguments, because sometimes the arguments are made in ways that they couldn't apply to anything else. Now, I will concede, and I'm not, you know, we had a laugh, I'm not trying to make light of a very serious issue. And blowing a stop sign is not the same as bearing a child and giving birth to a child and all that goes and all that goes with that. And so it is a, a very serious issue. And the beginning of life and the sanctity of life is a very serious issue. But some of the arguments that are made simply need to be thought through 
and understood that they could not be made in any other area of law. So with that, take a look at the history then of the abortion issue. Middle of page one. The practice of abortion has been common. Many cultures, though, considered abortion to be a serious crime. Part of the Hippocratic Oath, which most doctors endorse, states in part, I will not give a woman a drug to produce an abortion. The Jewish people were historically against the practice, as were the leaders of the early church. Until a few decades ago, most laws in the United States recognized that a woman was, quote, with child at the moment of conception. And that's what it was called. You were with child, uh, signifying the personhood of the of the child. In the landmark Roe v. Wade case in January of 73, the Supreme Court in a 7-2 vote found federally protect, a federally protected right to abortion based on a right to privacy in the U.S. Constitution. I'll talk about that in a minute. As a result of that, the abortion laws of all 50 states were invalidated and abortion became a constitutional right. From 1973 to 2011, over 50 million abortions were performed in the United States And I have some more statistics a little bit later on. Now, let me talk about that history that got us to January 22 of 1973 and the Roe v. Wade decision and the right to privacy and all of that. By the time the decision was made in January of 73, by the time that decision was made, there had been previous Supreme Court precedents that set the stage for that decision. 1965, there was a decision called Griswold versus Connecticut. And Griswold, the Griswold case was about contraception and access to contraception. And in that decision, uh, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of access to contraception. And in so doing, said that access to contraception is a constitutional right based upon the right to privacy. So that was the first time that this right to privacy was used by the Supreme Court as something connected to the Constitution itself. And then that was picked up a few years later, January of 73, in the abortion decision. And the abortion decision was based on the same right to privacy that had been uh, deemed constitutional, a constitutional right eight years earlier. Now, what about the right to privacy? I would encourage you to Google the Constitution this afternoon or sometime. It won't take you very, it's not very long. It won't take you very long to read it. Uh, the Constitution itself, along with the amendments that have gone with it, and the first ten of those amendments that were adopted within a couple of years of the passage, the ratification of the Constitution, Those first ten are called the Bill of Rights, and so we've got the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and we talk about having First Amendment rights. That's what we're talking about. And the First Amendment starts, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's the very first one. So that's one that's near and dear to my heart and should be to our hearts as religious people. Uh, but you've got the, the Bill of Rights. As you go through the Bill of Rights, as you go through the entire Constitution and all of its amendments, you will find uh, the, uh, the, the right to assembly, the right to freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. You'll find all of those. You won't find a right to privacy. You won't find that phrase, the right to privacy. You won't find the word 
privacy, as a matter of fact. So where then did the Supreme Court get the right to privacy as undergirding the right to an abortion as a constitutional right? Where did they get that? Well, here's what Harry Blackman, who wrote the 1973 majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, said. The right to, I'm quoting, the right to privacy is based upon penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. Everybody good with that? Penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. I had to look it up. A penumbra. A penumbra is a shadow. Is that you, Bob? Look at you. You should be a Jeopardy contestant. <laughs> shadow. Okay, penumbras, shadows, formed by emanations. Emanation means something derived from, that comes from. So shadows derived from the First Amendment. The right to privacy, according to the Supreme Court, comes from shadows that are derived from the First Amendment. Now, here's my understanding of what that means. That means it ain't in there. (laughs) But the Supreme Court deemed it to be moral to allow someone to have this choice. And the cramming of morality down someone's throat begins. It's always that way. So it's based upon this right to privacy, and seven of the nine Supreme Court justices agreed with that. Two voted against it. The two that voted against were uh, William Rehnquist, who had only been on the court for two years. He was appointed by Richard Nixon, and Byron White, who had been on the court for about 10 years, and he had been appointed by John F. Kennedy. But those two voted against it. Seven in favor, two against That became the law of the land. And it is, to this day, the law of the land. And will remain the law of the land unless and until a majority of the Supreme Court reverses that. Now, how does that happen? If that were to happen, how would it happen? Here's how it would happen. Just to take you back to civics class just for a bit. But the way it would happen is Supreme Court justices are on the court for lifetime appointments. So the only way they remove is they either retire or they die. They retire or they die. They can be removed by impeachment. I don't know, I don't believe a Supreme Court justice has ever been removed by impeachment. Highly unusual. Retirement or death. So you've got nine of them, and in 73 it was seven to two in favor. Over time, you had, you have of course had different presidents elected, and one of the president's prerogatives is to nominate people to the Supreme Court when an opening occurs. Jimmy Carter was elected in 76. He served one term for four years and had no openings. Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. Two terms over his eight years, he had two appointments to the Supreme Court. So that seven to two with Reagan's two appointments He was pro-life, vocally pro-life. You would think that that might make this then five to four. Uh, Still, though, in favor of Roe v. Wade. 
But it didn't quite happen that way. He appointed Sandra Day O'Connor in uh, 1981, and he appointed in 1986 uh, Antonin Scalia. And I actually misspoke. He had a third appointment. And the following year, uh, he was going to appoint. Nobody knew where Sandra Day O'Connor would come out on that. We were pretty sure we knew where Scalia would come out on it. Uh, but the following year, 1987, he had another opening, and he nominated a guy named Robert Bork. Anybody remember Robert Bork? And those uh, hearings for before the Senate Judiciary Committee, the president nominates, it has to be approved by the Senate, and that was a circus. And uh, Robert Bork was, his name became a verb after that. You get borked. And he was borked, and uh, he was denied access to the court. So Reagan then had to nominate someone else. He nominated someone named Douglas Ginsburg, not related to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was on the court. Douglas Ginsburg's nomination lasted less than a week because it was discovered that he had smoked marijuana with his students at Harvard a few months earlier. And so his, with, his nomination was withdrawn. Now the Reagan administration is flailing because they've had the Bork fiasco. They've had now the Ginsburg fiasco. we got to get somebody on here who can get through, somebody who will satisfy everybody. And he nominated Anthony Kennedy. And Anthony Kennedy stayed on the court in ju- until just a couple of years ago. And it turns out that Anthony Kennedy actually wrote the majority opinions to maintain Roe v. Wade in uh, a couple of opinions. He also wrote the majority opinion in the same-sex marriage case a couple of years ago as well. So here you had a conservative president who was pro-life. He nominated three judges to the Supreme Court, and two of those three voted to maintain Roe v. Wade. 1992, in your notes down toward the bottom, another case came before the Supreme Court, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, And in that case, it was an opportunity for the court to overturn Roe v. Wade. And as I said, at that point, we didn't know where Sandra Day O'Connor was going to be. We didn't know where Anthony Kennedy was going to be. But Anthony Kennedy, Sandra Day O'Connor, David Souter, who had been nominated by George H.W. Bush, another Republican pro-life president, all three of them voted with the five-person majority to maintain Roe v. Wade. So the pro-life movement, who was hoping that the court's complexion would change and thus change the outcome, didn't happen. And in the time since, here we are in 2019, it still hasn't happened. Now, in the meantime, there have been more retirements. Antonin Scalia died suddenly. Replacements. Uh, Donald Trump, in just two and a half years, has had two appointments to the Supreme Court. And one of those is Neil Gorsuch, and the other one is Brent Kavanaugh. And you add those to Clarence Thomas, who is uh, who is against Roe v. Wade, very vocally against Roe v. Wade. And then you've got John Roberts, and you have Samuel Alito. So we have the five of them. We know where Thomas is. The truth is we don't really know for sure where any of the rest of them are. Now, people guess just like they did in 92 and guessed wrong. So, there have been more recent developments. Bottom of page one. 
middle of that last paragraph, in May of 2019, this month, and you probably saw it in the news, Alabama passed a law that allows abortions only if the life of the mother is threatened, if the mother had a mental illness that could result in, quote, her death or the death of her unborn child, or if the child had a fatal anomaly that would result in stillbirth or its death after birth. Georgia has passed the fetal heartbeat law that bans abortions after the detection of a heartbeat, usually at six or seven weeks. Ohio and Mississippi have passed similar legislation. Twenty other states have either passed or attempted to pass stricter abortion legislation. All right, so what's this all going to mean? Well, now these are the strictest laws uh, we have had in decades with regard to abortion. What's going to happen and what these states want to happen is for this to wind itself through the courts, through the federal courts, One side wins, the other side loses. Whichever side loses, appeals. The appeals keep happening until it finally gets back to the Supreme Court. So one of these is going to get to the Supreme Court. Within the next, certainly within the next two years, one of these is going to get to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is going to have another opportunity to rule on Roe v. Wade. And those in the pro-life movement are hopeful that you have a 5-4 majority to overturn Roe v. Wade, But as I say, that's no guarantee. We don't know what John Roberts will do. Probably know what Samuel Alito will do. He'll probably vote against Roe v. Wade. Thomas certainly will. Gorsuch certainly will. Kavanaugh and Roberts, I wouldn't put any money on either one of those guys. So we'll we'll see. Actually, I wouldn't put any money on anybody, all right? But just to make that clear. Now, here's one of the things that will happen with that. Now what's going to happen, now that you've got these states passing these laws, and now that the Casey versus Planned Parenthood, uh, at the bottom of page 1, if you read that, it says that although they upheld the central finding in Roe v. Wade, they did allow states to regulate it more carefully. And so a lot of states have been doing that. Uh, that's reduced the number of abortions uh, that have been performed over the last several years. So that's one positive outcome from the pro-life side, but it's still the case that Roe v. Wade is the law of the land and it's a constitutional right to have access to an abortion. So therefore, states could only go so far. Well, these states are now, because they believe they may have a 5-4 majority on the court, are going this far in order to find out. Now, what this is going to do is we'll learn what those justices are going to rule, but here's the other thing it'll do. Politicians who have said that they are pro-life for years now are going to have to stand up and be counted. And I will predict for you that many of them will jump off the ship like rats. See, it's easy to be pro-life when it doesn't matter. It's easy to be pro-life when you can't pass any of these laws because they're going to be deemed unconstitutional anyway. But now, with the possibility that the Supreme Court will actually overturn, if you're a state legislator, now your vote actually matters. Because you can actually outlaw abortion in the state of Michigan or Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia. And so now you're going to have to stand up and be counted. So the pro-life movement, on the one hand, has gotten something they think they want, and that is, think we want, and that is a majority on the court. We're not sure about that, but maybe. But once that happens, if it happens, now the focus will revert to individual states and individual state legislatures and the laws that they pass. 
And you'll see who's really willing to stand up for that. Many Republican uh, politicians have said that they are pro-life for years, and I believe that a, a large number of them are not. And I think we will see that they're not when it becomes hard to do. But we'll see. Top of page two. Interestingly, in 2004, Congress passed and the president signed into law the Abortion Victims of Violence Act. Now, 2004, George W. Bush was the president. It's a federal law that considers certain crimes against a pregnant woman a crime committed against two people. Abortion foes worked against this bill because they recognized that it gave human status to unborn children. Yet one of the clauses in the bill explicitly states that abortion is not covered by it. It's just schizophrenic. It's just weird. Okay, but that's the way our laws have, have been. You've got you've got legislators trying to be creative in ways to chip away and to protect, but because it's a constitutional right, you can only go so far, and so you have to have clauses like that. Skip down to the bottom of page two. Some statistics. Based on the latest state-level data, approximately 879,000 abortions took place in our country in 2017. That's down from 892 in 2016, 913 in 2015. According to the Guttmacher Institute, that's a that's closely connected with Planned Parenthood. It's a uh, it's uh, in favor of abortion in, uh, organization. An estimated 926,240 abortions took place in 2014. That was down from over a million in 2011, 1.2 million in 2008 and 2005, 1.29 in 02, 1.3, 1.36. So you see that the, the trend has been trending downward, partly because legislatures have chipped away uh, at, at access. In 2014... Approximately 19% of U.S. pregnancies ended in abortion. So that's about one in five ending in abortion. During the next 24 hours, about 2,400 abortions will take place. So about 100 every hour. In 2015, in Michigan, about one in five. Now, please note this last one. The state of Florida records a reason for every abortion that occurs within its borders each year. In 2015, there were 71,740 abortions in Florida. Of that number, almost 99% were performed on healthy women with healthy babies. Now, the reason that that's, that's important to bear in mind as this debate goes forward is, as you know, one of the things that uh, folks will bring up, in addition to who are you to cram your morality, who are you to tell me what I can do with my own body, is what about cases of rape and incest and so on, life of the mother. And I don't say that those are unimportant. They're hugely important. But I do want us all to recognize that though it's a, it's a very minuscule number of the actual abortions that are performed. The abortions that are performed are, as you see, upwards of always above 90% and upwards of almost 100% uh, for choice reasons. All right, let's skip then to page number four, and let's look at what the Bible has to say about this. Biblical principles about the humanity of an unborn child. Several lines of evidence in the Bible that strongly suggest that an unborn child is fully human and just as valuable as anyone else. 
For example, in the Bible, the same words are used both of unborn children as well as children that have been born. The Hebrew word yaled, most often used for children, is used for the unborn in Exodus 21. The Greek word in Acts chapter 7, verse 19, that's used, refers to children killed at Pharaoh's command, is also used in Luke 1 of John the Baptist before he was born. So you get the same words for the unborn and the born. In the Bible, personal pronouns are applied to unborn children. So David writes Psalm number 139, and he says, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. The unborn, even at the zygote stage, is referred to in a personal way. David was a sinful human from the time of conception. His body was knit together in his mother's womb. And you have human emotion attributed to the unborn uh, John the Baptist. And emotion is an aspect of personality, and so it would seem that the Bible attributes personality and therefore personhood to the unborn. But notice Exodus 21. The law views the unborn as fully human persons. Exodus 21 says, If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. Now let me just stop there. Now, when it says here, if, if two men are struggling and they strike a woman and there's no injury, no injury to, to whom? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be the baby. And the reason it's got to be the baby is if it's not the baby, there's no reason to mention that she's with child. And the whole giving birth prematurely. So it's not injury to her, but, uh, but also injury to the, to the baby. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So if the baby is not harmed, the woman's harmed, then you exact the penalty for harming the woman. But if you kill the baby, uh, or kill the woman for that matter, but if you kill either one of them, there's going to be capital punishment administered. Now, why is that? That's because the life of this child is considered to be a fully human life, according to according to the Bible. So the point, bottom of page 4 of the passage, is that both the mother and the unborn child are of equal value. If neither the premature child nor the mother is hurt, a fine is levied. However, if either is hurt, the guilty party will be punished in kind, even to the point of death. And so the law of Moses views both the unborn and adult as equally human, equally valuable, Wayne House says rightly that the text gives no credence to abortion of the fetus, but rather reveals the sanctity of both adult and fetal life. Further, the Bible indicates that humanness is transferred to the unborn child. David says of himself in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. This verse strongly supports the idea that a fetus is indeed an individual human person. A glob of non-human tissue cannot be sinful. But David asserts he was sinful from the time of conception, which could be true only if he were fully human from that point. If you notice down the footnote, down footnote four, down at the bottom, because David received his parents' total depravity at his conception, we find support for the traducian view of the origin of man and individuals not directly created by God, but rather as a product of procreation reflecting his parentage. And just as an aside, this is one of the reasons that it was necessary for Jesus to come into the world through a miraculous virgin conception. 
Because at conception, we receive our sin nature from our parents. And David received his sin nature at conception. And thus, uh, an indication that he's a considered a full human person, is a full human person. And then Psalm 139 shows that God's interest in a person begins long before long before birth. So the Bible teaches that the child in the womb from the moment of conception is a person and a person who is to be accorded protection. Now on page 6 you have medical and scientific proof that an unborn child is human. I'll let you read that on your own. I will just say this. That one of the reasons that the pro-life movement has gained ground, we'll see if that continues, if Roe v. Wade's overturned because of what I said, but one of the reasons that it's gained ground is because of advances in medical technology. In 1973, when Roe was decided, uh, you did not have ultrasound technology like you have today. And now we can see very clearly what's happening in the in the womb. We can see exactly when it's happening and when the heartbeat is starting and when the child feels pain and watch the movements of the child and all of that. And it's becoming increasingly more difficult then for those who are pro-abortion, the pro-choice side, it's increasingly more difficult for them to say, this is not a human person. So advances in science have helped the pro-life cause immensely. Now, here are some issues that... We'll conclude with quality of life versus the value of life. Since one cannot deny the biological data supporting the human life of an unborn child, abortion proponents have shifted the argument to the value of life rather than the presence of it. You see what we're saying here? So it's now becoming hard to say there is no life there, that it's just a glob of tissue. That's what used to be said. Now with the advances in technology, that's almost impossible to say. So now it's the, the, the value of that life, not the presence of it. So matters like a negative impact on the quality of the mother's life, financial or emotional drain on the parents, physical or mental problems of the child, and so on. Morality, then, for abortion supporters consists of giving women the freedom to abort their children if they desire. Taking away that right to self-determination is considered immoral. They consider access to abortion a basic human right. The availability of so-called safe and legal abortions is a sign of a mature civilization they contend. Now, notice that phrase, safe and legal. Notice the safe part. The idea, then, is protect women by making abortion available and safe. Safe for whom? See, I just want to point that out to you, that that gets lost very easily when we talk about safe and legal. When we talk about safe, we're talking about the safety, yes, of the mother. And I'm not saying that's unimportant. But the reason this is an issue is because what is at issue is whether or not you have another person involved. And if you have another person involved, then you have to talk about the safety of that person. So from a pro-life standpoint, there's no such thing as a safe abortion. Because it's never safe for the child. And so I want you to just think about that because you hear that phrase very often. And it resonates with a lot of people. uh, Because, of course, we want no harm done to anyone. We want no harm done to the mother, certainly. But just bear in mind that abortion is never safe. 
never safe, particularly for the child. Biblical ethics demands that all humans hold value. From the very young to the very old, all humans share the image of God and possess the rights common to all people. When someone tries to determine what lives are valuable and what lives are not, humanity starts sliding toward barbarism. Any scheme that attempts to define worthwhile or useful life can easily exclude any number of categories of people. And, of course, we know in history that's happened. All right. So in conclusion, we must value all life. According to the biblical evidence, God recognizes the humanity of a child before its birth. Unborn children at whatever stage of development are individual persons with the rights afforded to other humans. Because an unborn child is in the image of God, we must acknowledge the sanctity of that life. Medically speaking, the unborn child is just as human as a a born child is. Therefore, abortion is the taking of life and is condemned as the sin of murder. Abortion is not the answer to the problem of unwanted pregnancies. Human life is a gift from God. Its origin in biological terms reflects the order of creation. So we must value all life. Now, it is the sin of murder. Very stark. So that then raises the question, well, okay, in policy terms, what does that mean should happen to someone who has an abortion? Is that person a, is that person a murderer then? And if they're a murderer, what should happen? We're going to be looking at capital punishment in a few weeks, what the Bible teaches about that. So in the extreme case, would that be a punishment if this is, if this is a murder? And the laws, it's interesting that the laws passed in Georgia, the laws passed in Alabama, they all don't focus on punishing the woman. Who do they punish, focus on punishing? The abortion provider. And so because biblically and logically abortion is the taking of a life, that is without doubt, then it does not necessarily follow that the punishment has to be the taking of the mother's life, or some other kind of harsh punishment. So the punishments can be decided, and the truth is we have different kinds of degrees of taking of taking of life, do we not, in the law? You have first degree, you have second degree, you have manslaughter, you have all of that. So my personal suggestion is that as pro-life people, you're not focused on punishment, and you're not focused on penalty, You're focusing on saving the lives of children. And so the best laws will be those laws that do that and then find other ways to protect those children who might be unwanted uh, as a result of those pregnancies. I'll talk about that in just a bit. Bottom of page 7, we must not rely too heavily on government. The overturning of Roe v. Wade is a constant discussion in political circles. Each election cycle brings it to the forefront. Court nominees are asked their position on the case under the guise of searching for their position on stare decisis. That's Latin for let the decision stand. So they're always asked that. We've had this decision. It's been with us for over 40, almost 50 years. And uh, so where do you, are you going to let the decision stand? Because that's a principle the court's supposed to follow. We must realize that overturning Roe v. Wade would not outlaw abortion. It would simply return the laws of abortion to the individual states. And then each state would make its own decision about Abortion. So overturning Roe v. Wade isn't going to solve the issue. What about cases of rape, incest, or the life of the mother? While rape and incest are horrible crimes that should be punished to the full extent of the law, a murder in the form of abortion only compounds the tragedy. 
In the cases of the life of the mother, it's somewhat ethically more challenging. Some would argue that you should never sacrifice two lives for the sake of one. We should abort the baby rather than risk the death of the baby and mother both. It seems more consistent, though, with biblical teaching to honor both the life of the mother and the baby by leaving them in God's hands with the best medical care available. God is the one who gives and takes. We should not play God with the lives of the mother and or the baby. So, what should we do about abortion? We need to provide alternatives, focusing on adoption. So, for my part, as a pro-life person, believing the word of God, and that all life is valuable, and all the principles that we looked at, for my part, I would like to see every abortion law that is passed have an accompanying adoption law as well. It is ridiculous how hard it is to adopt a child. It's ridiculous how much it costs to adopt a child. And there are people who want to adopt these children. But we make it so difficult. And as a result, abortion is very inexpensive, and so babies are are discarded. Making adoption more accessible and more affordable would be an appropriate alternative. And many women, I believe, knowing that a child would be going uh, to a good home, would then be pleased to make a better choice. We must provide care and support for unwed mothers, counseling, and so on in our future counseling center. That's one of the things that we're going to want to do. We should teach, next paragraph, biblical purity, that sex is for marriage, and our young people need to understand that, and we need to try to model before them and encourage them to practice that. Realize that changing laws won't fix the ultimate problem. We must strive to change hearts through the message of Jesus. And then notice this paragraph, for those who have had an abortion. The great news is there's forgiveness in Christ. His death for sin covers even the sin of abortion. You need not live with the guilt. You can experience the grace of forgiveness. Now, this room, I don't have any idea what the background of some of our dear ladies are. Don't know. In a room this size, I would hazard to guess, given the statistics that we saw, that there may well be some of you who have this in your background and you live with it. And I want you to read that paragraph carefully because there's forgiveness in Jesus. And he will take your guilt and he will take your shame. You bring that to him. You bring that to the foot of the cross. Further, I would encourage you to get help for the struggle with that guilt and shame. Many of you will remember Sharon Sternberg. And she and James moved out to the west side of the state. But Sharon is still involved with Healing Hearts ministry. And Healing Hearts is all about helping women who are post-abortive. Deal with the guilt and the shame and apply the gospel to that issue. If you're interested in that, then you can contact me um, and I'll put you in touch with them so that you can get that help. For those contemplating abortion, please consider your other options. You do not need to go down this road. If you don't want to keep your baby, there are loving Christian couples who would love to adopt your baby and raise him or her in a godly home. From God's perspective, all life is sacred because all life is created in his image. As we saw from the Bible, unborn children are clearly recognized as humans and are to be treated as such even in the law. 
As we view life from God's perspective, it should cause us to honor life just as he does. We must let him be the taker of life just as he is the giver. All right, let me give some announcements that are on the back cover of your notes. And I don't know if this one's on there for May 26th, the marriage oneness, oneness marriage. Is that what it says? Okay. So just make note of that one week from tonight. For those of you interested, if you haven't been to the previous, I think, three sessions, uh, you can jump in 6 o'clock here next Sunday night for the marriage class for couples. Then on Memorial Day, uh, one week from tomorrow at uh, noon, uh, we will have our Memorial Day picnic on the south side of the building. And rather than having a potluck, we are having uh, a food truck come. So adults, it's $6 for yours. Uh, children's uh, meal is $3. If you're an adult and you, don't, and you want a children's meal, you, you can get a children's meal for, for 3 bucks. So you don't have to be a child. There's no age 12 or any of that. But it's just a smaller meal. And there's gluten-free options. And go to that image on our website and you can register. You can do that at the kiosk that's out in the uh, lobby. And you need to pay. You need to pay your $6 per adult, $3 per child, and do that ahead of time. So do that even before you leave today if you can. Home Plate is at uh, Comerica Park on June the 6th, Saturday, June 6th. And you need tickets for that. Those are available in the Resource Center out the back door and across the hallway. And then lastly, on Father's Day, June 16th, Parent Dedication. Any parents who want to stand before God's people and before the Lord and say we're committed to raising our children the way God says, there are some resolutions that are on our information center desk. Pick up a copy of those, read them. If you're good with that, then email me. My email address is in the program, today's program. And then let me know you want to do that and we'll go from there. Let's pray and we'll be done. Do we have the welcome text uh, thing as well? So, uh, and if you're new today, that phone number, text the word welcome to it, and then we'll send you a link where you can tell us uh, about your visit and what we can do to help you, okay? All right, let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this Lord's Day and the opportunity to look into your word about how your spirit works uh, in our lives and uses our minds uh, in order to communicate your truth and for us to think about it and meditate upon it and apply it and obey it. We thank you for this hour, for us to be able to look at what you say about the sacredness of human life. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to grope in darkness, but you've given us the light and lamp of your word so that we can see truth about you, the giver of life, and what that life entails and when it begins. So, Lord, help us to be people who cherish that, who love that, and who obey that and uphold it. And then, Lord, help us to be people who do that, though, in a Christ-like and compassionate way. Lord, we are all affected and afflicted by sin and the ravages of sin. And it comes in so many shapes and it it has impacted us in so many different ways. And so, Lord, for any of those here who have been impacted by the sin of abortion, I ask your grace upon them through the gospel of the Lord Jesus to bring them to yourself if they don't know you and then bring them to a point of healing. May they reach out in order to make application of the truth of your grace that's found in Jesus to apply to this issue. For the rest of us, Lord, help us to indeed uphold truth, help us to uh, favor policies that uphold life. And Lord, uh, may we stand even when it becomes difficult and even when the politicians fail, may we stand for your truth. And uh, Lord, may your gospel then triumph. 
May we win hearts and minds as a result of the truth being lived out and communicated. And now we ask you, Lord, to go with us this week. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.